Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the psalm upon which that song is based. You knew me, Lord. What I'd like to do here this morning is a responsive reading through this chapter, Psalm 139. I will read the odd-numbered verses, and if you as a congregation would please read in unison the even-numbered verses. So Psalm 139, an incredible, beautiful psalm, proclaiming and declaring our God is the omniscient, all-knowing God, the one worthy of praise, the one in whom we can trust. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. O God, indeed, may this psalm be the prayer of each our hearts. Oh, what a comfort it is to be known of you. Indeed, Lord, you know all about us. You know each of our thoughts. You know each of our motives. You know us better than we know ourselves. Oh, as we think of your thoughts towards us, we echo with the psalmist, it is too wonderful. Oh, the privilege of being known by you, of knowing that you oversee in our lives, knowing that you are our good shepherd, 
and you know us as a shepherd knows his sheep. Lord Jesus, may we follow you as you lead us in the way everlasting. And as we now open your word and look to the teachings relating to how we interact with this world around us, I pray that your spirit would teach us, that you would fill me with your spirit as I share your words. May I do so appropriately. May I do so in honor to what you have revealed. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would move among us, that your spirit would teach us that indeed we all might be sanctified in you, our God. And so we commit ourselves now to you as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have seen in this book the theme of suffering. We have seen that Christ, in chapter 2, in verse 21, set for us or left for us an example of suffering that we should follow his steps. We have learned of the importance of relationships and roles. We have learned of the incredible beauty in chapter 3 and verse 12, of having the eyes of the Lord upon us and he the one who bends to hear our prayers. And now in verse 13, the subject of suffering is picked up again. And really, in some respects, it continues through consistently the rest of the book. But as soon here, after these very practical admonitions have been given of how we ought to conduct ourselves in this world, of how we ought to live and have our conversation among the Gentiles, righteous and godly, and as soon as after this statement is made here in verse 12 regarding the eyes of the Lord being upon the righteous, and his ears open unto their prayers. And the warning and declaration that the face of the Lord is against them that doeth evil. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to ask a question. And it's a question we need to sit up and hear and know the answer to. Here is the question. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Do that which is good has been admonished here in the preceding verses. Now the question is asked, who is it that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Take for a moment with me and let's go back in history to the first century, the A.D. 60s, when this was first written, when this was first circulating among the churches. Who is he that would harm thee, if thou be doers of good? The rumors are circulating throughout the Roman Empire that in Nero's palace, Christians are tied up on posts, covered in tar, and lit on fire alive. It <laughs> sounds like somebody that will hurt me. Doesn't it to you? Other horrific accounts come, and even many of the people in this very region of the Roman Empire have suffered horrible things for doing good, for doing that which is righteous. And so when Peter asks this question, who is he that will harm you? He's not asking this in a temporal, physical way. 
He's asking this question from an eternal perspective. From a perspective of heaven. From a perspective that this life is but a vapor. And for some people, their bodies become vapor. That is what is described here. What is really the case is that there's no one who can harm you. Really, the summary of this question is answered in the, in the following verses. But it's very fascinating as it goes back again to Christ being the one who has suffered for sins. So let me read, if I may, verses 13, or actually verse 12, down through the end of the chapter. And really, that's not the place we can even stop, but continue on. But follow with me to put this in context before we dive into it specifically. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that doeth evil. And who is he that will harm you? If ye be followers of that which is good. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached into the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So I ask the question again, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? It's fascinating. As you look at the last verse of this chapter, as it describes Jesus Christ, the one who has been resurrected from the dead, the one who has now gone into heaven, the one who sits at the right hand of God. This the one. And it's fascinating in context of the subjection we've been discussing, where the commands have been given of submit yourselves to the to the every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, so the submission of that place there, all of the different aspects of the employee submission, the husband and wife relation of submission. All of these aspects of submission, isn't it fascinating that when it gets to the final climax of it all, that there is no one who is not in the end made subject unto the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, that's the perspective that we need. The perspective that we need as we walk through life is the perspective from the throne of God. So often we get bogged down because this is a dark world and there are weird and crazy things. But we need to, in Christ, rise above it all and be seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus as described in Ephesians and see this life from the eternal perspective. Verse 14, but and if ye suffer 
for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. It is amazing to me to look throughout Scripture to see the repeated paradox of the one who is suffering and is happy. I'm Jesus. I, I, he, sometimes I, 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 I'm so glad that I know that I can believe and trust him because some of the things he said in my little brain don't make sense. But I've read in history and I've experienced in my own life the things that he has said and revealed. And even here now, the Holy Spirit is revealed through Peter. This is a paradox. Or maybe I should use a stronger word, an antinomy. Two statements that just contradict. I mean, how can there be happiness in the midst of suffering? But there is. It can be assured of when our perspective is correct. See, here, even as it continues on, how can there be happiness when we are to not be afraid of their terror and neither be troubled? You know how? For the very same reason that Jesus gave the night before he suffered. When he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he went on to present to them an eternal perspective. And again, it is that heavenly and eternal perspective that can cause this to be a reality where we be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Few of us have anticipation of suffering for righteousness' sake. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake in the sense that we suffer the consequences of our failures or sins in the past. And in that case, we must not somehow excuse ourselves or hope to avoid or get out of the natural consequences of our sins, but embrace it. In a sense, there is a righteous suffering in that way. But how often do we actually, for doing what is right, suffer? In this day, to be identified even as a Christian was illegal. You were automatically a criminal. So often in our society, we actually have the opposite problem. We have people who will take and claim the label of Christian when they have no idea what it means or what the gospel is, let alone truly be saved and be truly a little Christ or a follower of Christ. Oh, if we are called upon to suffer, will we be happy? Well, if our perspective and our trust is in God, we can be. We can be. But how else are so many throughout history, and even in different parts of the world today, able to not be afraid of their terror nor be troubled? Yes, it is having the eternal perspective. But look how it continues on in this position. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I'd like to address this verse beginning with the first concept and the last concept. The first is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Well, what's that mean? Well, I hope you know what the word sanctify means. It means holy. And I hope you know what the word holy means. It means set apart. I have a bookcase of books over here. Did you know that, in a sense, we can call all these Bibles? Thank you, Bruce, for bringing this up there, up here. Who was your helper? I missed. Roy. Thank you, Roy. My OCD is giving me trouble. I had them all lined up straight, and now they're all crooked. Nothing against you guys. I'm trying to decide if I need to straighten them up here before I can go on and focus on them. 
I have a whole bunch of books here, whole bookcase. You know, technically, we could call these all Bibles. You know, the bibliography, a bibliography is a list of all the books referenced and researched in preparing a book. Bibli, Bible, means book, means book. So I got a whole bookcase of books. And right here, what's it say? Holy Bible. Why? Well, because these here are all the opinions of man. You know, we got a book here. This is a great title. Philosophy. All kinds of books by men. They're all Bibles. But this is a holy Bible. It's set apart. It's different. It's special. It's special because it's God's Word. This is one of the most beautiful illustrations of the word holy in a visual sense. An important application to us. So now here, what does this say? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. How do you do that? Well, remember I told you that sanctify is connected to the word holy. That's a sanctified book. Because it's a holy book. Because it's God's word. We too are holy people. Turn with me back a page to chapter 1, where we are commanded to gird up the loins of our minds in verse 13, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now you might say, wait a minute, preacher, that sounds like a contradiction because you just read over in chapter 3 and verse 14 that we are to not be afraid of their terror nor be troubled. You're right, I did. The passing are sojourning here in fear as a holy people. This fear is not a fear of those who will hurt us. This is not a fear of man who may be able to burn our bodies or kill us, but there's no power over our souls. This is a fear, a reverence, an awe of the holy God. Which, by the way, coming back to chapter 3 and verse 15, we begin with sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And you notice here at the end it says with meekness and fear. This here too is a fear of God, not of man. In fact, we see it parallel. It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction here of be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. It's not contradicting that. It's indeed reinforcing that. Because your fear is in the right place in a fear of God, you have no fear of those who, who would be able to harm you from the eternal perspective. It's a reverence and an awe and a fear of God. So we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. What does that mean? Well, what is our heart? Our heart's who we are on the inside, isn't it? It's not, it's not that organ that pumps the blood through our body here. I mean, that is called the heart, but that's not what's talked about here. We don't put God in that organ and let, him, let it beat. That's, that's not the point. The heart speaks of the inner man, particularly the inner man, the person who's on the inside, who's the real us, but not just the real us, the place where our passions are found, the place where our desires are found, our wishes, the place where the things that are really important are determined in our heart. There's a lot of things that we put into our hearts. We have memories we have dear friends, family, even your spouse. I hope your spouse is set apart in your heart. And you say, really? Yes. Is she special to you? 
in your heart? What place does she have in your priorities? Where is she in the treasure of your heart? You see so often, partly because we have such an earthly view, we fail to be holy people. And one of the primary ways of being holy people is to make holy in our hearts the holy God. Recognizing that he is God in our hearts. And giving him that value and that priority. It's really an aspect of day by day, moment by moment, abiding in him and he abiding in us and his words abiding in us whereby we can be have him sanctified in our hearts so often he takes the back place as other pleasures as other wishes as other desires as other work or other obligations or other duties crowd him out of the treasure of our heart can't crowd him out. No, he needs to be set apart as the sacred king, lord of our hearts. And not just the lord. He's the overseer. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the lover of our souls. Is he set apart as that one in our hearts? You see, when he is, then Who is he that will harm you? It won't make a difference. Because when he is set apart, you will not need to be afraid of them, nor be troubled. For he is set apart in your hearts. He is the first place. And he will, as the one who set the example of suffering, be with you in that suffering in giving you hope. Which we're going to talk about here in a moment. Why do you have hope? The verse here, verse 15, is a fascinating verse. It says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But what is the hope that we have? Well, If we were to just um, look here across the page, we find out that we need to gird up the loins of our mind in chapter 2, verse 13, and be sober and hope to the end. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's another hope that Peter has already talked to us about. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 3, the great benediction, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our hope. It is a lively hope. It is a hope in the grace of God, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back one day, but knowing that we too have life in him that is eternal. Do you have that hope this morning? That hope is found only in Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. Believe in him and you can have that hope. And then you'll have a hope to talk about. You'll have a hope to talk about. Which is what is also described here in this very verse. For the admonition here is given to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and then it says this, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready always to give an answer. Be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in you. First of all, do you have the hope? And if you do, are you ready to give an answer of the hope that is in you? 
That word there, give an answer, is the word apologia in Greek, from which we get the word apologetics, from which we have an entire system in theology of the defending of the faith. Or apology means to give a defense, to defend the faith, to defend the hope. Here, literally, it says, be ready to give an apology for the hope that you have. Now, you have to understand the word apology. We use the word apology oftentimes incorrectly in our modern time. An apology isn't when you've done something wrong and um, you're saying that you're confessing it as wrong and you're, you're owning it and, and acknowledging the sin. An, that, that would be confession. An apology is an, a, def, a defense. So let me illustrate it this way. I used to do customer service. And I've shared this with you before. Maybe you remember the difference between how I would use the word sorry and I apologize. I used to do customer service and we'd ship out products and people always were impatient and always wanted them to come fast. But you know what? Our job was to get them out fast and so we'd get them out the door as fast as we could and then once they got out the door, UPS would mess up. But hey, kudos to UPS, they're the best. DHL would mess up. And um, so you would have these situations where they'd mess up and these customers would call up and they'd be angry and they're yelling in my ear. And I needed meekness in my response to them. I needed to give them an answer. And so I would apologize. I would apologize by saying, your order shipped on time on such and such a day, and here's the tracking number. And I apologize to, as I see here, UPS is delayed in their delivery. And sometimes that would be okay, and sometimes it wouldn't be okay. And I'd say, I use the word apologize. But being the word nerd that I am, if it was our fault, and they called in, and we shipped it out late, and there were reasons why we did that, and they would call in, and they'd be yelling in my ear, I would say, I am so sorry. We failed to ship that on time. We'll do our best to get that out. And if they calmed down, all was good. And if they kept yelling at us, I'd say, would you like me to send you a $5 Starbucks gift card? And sometimes that helped better. But there was a difference here of the question of an apology, which was a defense and a confession. Yeah, don't try to make calling and get me because they don't do it anymore. Um, I went and checked my desk drawer to see if they still had any Starbucks gift cards there, and they don't have them. I just checked on Monday. Um, but there's a difference between a confession and an apology. A confession is an admittance and an owning of doing wrong. An apology is offering a defense, giving an answer, giving a reason as to why what was done was done or why what you believe is what you believe. And so here there is the need for ready to give an answer. When it's, I use the word apology, sometimes we get this idea of go, yeah, I know, um, it's kind of weird, but this is what we believe. That's not the idea here. That's not the idea. The idea here is of the fact that you have a hope and hope is a confident expectation in what is true. And you are giving an answer for that hope, a defense. Apologetics, it's a fascinating subject in theology. Um, my wife's grandfather got his PhD or THD in apologetics. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the topic of apologetics from a philosophical standpoint. And so it was a specialty. So when I inherited his library, guess what? There were a lot of books of, on apologetics. This entire bookcase is all books on the topic of apologetics. The entire bookcase is all on apologetics. Now, the verse says, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. What does it mean to be ready? It doesn't mean 
that you need to go get a library like this and you need to read all of these books and you need to read up on every single criticism, accusation, question, ethical dilemma that people have about God or the Bible. I'm not criticizing this library. Notice I kept it. There is a wealth of information in this library relating to the field of apologetics, relating to giving an answer to those who ask questions about God, about the Bible, about what we believe. There's a lot of information here in all of this. There's a wealth of information here. And I'm so thankful to have much of it. But being ready to give an answer doesn't mean mastering every single topic or issue. There is in being ready to give an answer. So what is it? Well, it's the first part of the verse. It is sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts. It's not about knowing every objection, knowing every criticism, knowing every issue. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing God and about His Spirit living inside of you and His Word abiding in you. And there's nothing wrong with having these resources. In fact, they're helpful in many occasions. I have been presented with and been asked of men many questions. And you know, it doesn't mean that I was not ready to say, let me study your question and get back with you. Now, there's a few things that need to be right on the tip of our tongue, like the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for my sins. The fact that he died and rose again so that I could have life. Oh, that hope. All of us need to be ready at a moment's notice to be able to share of that hope. That's the primary point of always being ready. But there's many other occasions in which there may be questions that are asked of us that we may not know the answer to. And don't be afraid of those questions. And don't be afraid of saying, let me get back to you. But let me caution you, don't go running to pastor's library on apologetics or the books we have here in the church on apologetics or worse yet, Google, and looking for answers. Better start here. Start here, start here with the concordance. And then when you do pick up one of these books, make sure that it's in agreement with this book. All these Bibles books are not holy. This one is. Make sure they're in agreement with this book. And I'll tell you and warn you of some things and some philosophies. You know, a lot of these books here are dealing with um, different aspects of, of apologetics. And some of them deal with issues specifically. And some of them deal with apologetics in a philosophical manner, high level, how, what is and how, how do we apologize? How do we offer a defense of Scripture? And um, there's different approaches to this. And um, we're not going to take the time this morning because we don't have the time to go into all of the different aspects of it. We do offer a course every few years on apologetics in which we go into the philosophy of it. But um, one of the key things to be aware of is that faith, that is the belief in what God has said, is key to our apologetics. There are lots of books in this shelf here regarding creation. Very helpful, very helpful books regarding, regarding creation. But when you actually come down to the very, very end, to the skeptic or the honest inquirer relating to creation, I cannot prove to you that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It is a matter that I accept and you'll have to accept by faith. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
oh, we can have lots of very good discussions on that topic, and there's some really good books written on the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the logical arguments for the resurrection of Christ. But in the end, what really will make the difference is faith. Do you believe that simply God said so? See, that's what hope is. You see how they're tied together? Be ready always to give an answer of the, to every man that asketh you of the reason of the hope that is within you. Yes, books can be helpful, but ultimately it's about the Lord God being sanctified in your hearts. In fact, Peter, who wrote this, if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 records for us the account of when Peter was one of the 12 disciples whom Jesus had called and whom Jesus sent forth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And in his instructions to them in Matthew chapter 10, it's fascinating some of what he said. And I wonder that as Peter is writing this this day, if he's not thinking back to that day when he was with Jesus and Jesus was preparing to send them out with the gospel of the kingdom. And we can learn from it because there's a parallel to it here of how we are to be ready always to give an answer. Jesus said to them in Matthew 10, verse 16, Behold, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Sound familiar to 1 Peter 3? Sounds like something to be terrified and afraid of and troubled of, right? But no. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore... This is a part of apologetics. This is a part of being ready to give an answer. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the consuls, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, look what this says, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Well, is this a contradictory to what Peter is saying about being ready always to give an answer? Oh, no, it's not. In fact, what he is describing here is a very outworking of when we have sanctified the Lord God in our hearts and given the right and proper place to him and his Holy Spirit and ultimately through the leading of his Spirit and also from what we have revealed and confirmed in his word, we are able to give an answer. This doesn't mean that as our memory verse taught us this morning, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a need for us to be studying God's word. There is a need for us to be preparing. We don't just come and, I don't, if I were to come here this morning every week and just stand up and just go, well, Spirit, just tell me what to say when I get up there. I don't think any of you would be here because I wouldn't have much to say. For the Holy Spirit uses his word in this time to reveal to us his will, and it's the preaching of his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am so thankful for that, because there's a lot of times when I don't feel like I have effectively communicated the word and found out later that the Holy Spirit was communicating directly to people through his word, and oh, how great that is. And that happens in all kinds of aspects of apologetics. And so be ready, but being ready is sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts and giving the answer of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We've talked about fear a little bit, haven't we? Fear is a fear of God, an awe, a reverence, a respect. I preach God's word this morning with a fear of God because if I didn't, I would be tempted to twist and to modify it according to my whims and wishes. I must preach it according and in the fear of God. So too we must give our answers in that way. I'll warn you, even some of these books here and looking at them, 
there are some of them where they have actually attempted to take the scriptures and have tried to make it palatable for the 21st century person. Now, most of these are good books, but there's a few parts and ways in which that happens sometimes. And we got to be aware of that. And we got to be aware that we're not doing it. And also in how we give our answer. Oh, how we give our answer. Do we give it with meekness? What did we learn about meekness last week in relation to the women adorning themselves? Where they have the hidden man of the heart, a spirit of meekness. What is meekness? Remember what meekness is? Meekness is a gentle strength under great pressure. It is a gentle strength when under great pressure. Put yourself in context here. The terror, the dread of men is upon you. That's pressure. You have the threat of being the next light post in Nero's garden. That sounds like pressure, doesn't it? How are you going to give an answer of the hope that lieth within you with meekness? It's going to be a strength, a power, you might say, that is under control. You're not just going to be flippant and flippant and just making random comments without care. It's going to be a controlled strength that's not just mean and cruel. In fact, it's not mean and cruel. It is gentle and kind. Sometimes when we get attacked in our Christianity, we are tempted to react or to respond in attack or in debate. This isn't about responding in attack or in debate. This is giving an answer, an answer from God's word of the hope that lieth within us and giving it in a controlled, powerful, gentle way, no matter how great the pressure is from the outside. That's meekness. And when you follow apologetics, people who teach apologetics or give you um, lessons on apologies, and if they are doing it without this spirit of meekness, be careful. Don't follow their examples. There are many Christians who call themselves Christians, and I won't question that, that point of them, but they respond or they get into this defense mode relating to the faith or Christianity, and it's not a defense mode that is in meekness, but a defense mode that is attacking and harsh and cruel and mean and putting down and belittling. No, the real giving an answer is one where there is gentleness and strength and power that is controlled in spite of enormous outside pressure. So we do be ready to give an answer. Being ready is sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. And it carries into another aspect here in verse 16. Having a good conscience. We need to make sure that we've cleared up issues. If we've done people wrong and then we try to preach at them the hope that was within us, they're going to have a hard time accepting it. Meaning we need to both live before them an honest life and if we have not always lived an honest life, either before we were a Christian or even when, since we've been a Christian, in humbly dealing with that sin, that we may have this good conversation. And Peter acknowledges and knows that there's issues here that are going to result in, you know, some people who are called Christians, if we keep reading this, are, are going to get themselves into trouble, not because of their Christianity, but because of their sin, so here again he's saying, don't be sinning. Don't be living a life that is not holy. Live a life that is holy. Have a good conscience. So whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. And again, conversation is not just what you speak in your mouth, but what you speak and what you do. Your way of life. Is it a good conversation that is in 
Christ, there again is an aspect of this Lord being sanctified in your heart. And when this is true and when you are recognizing this, it is then that no matter what you suffer, you have nothing to fear. And so this morning, we may not be with imminent threat of persecution. But I hope that you live your life in such a way where others see the hope that is in you. And I hope that you are ready always to give an answer of that hope. Are you sanctifying the Lord God, setting him apart day by day, moment by moment in your life so that you can truly be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in you? And when you do, and the Lord is sanctified in your heart, it will naturally be in meekness and fear. Just as a note on that, if it's not in meekness, check yourself. If you, che- if, you, if, you, if you identify in giving an answer and you realize it's not in meekness, check yourself. Because it may mean that you're just given a good debate and you're not really sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. Because when he's sanctified in your heart, he is going to, through his word and his spirit, enable you to give an answer in meekness and fear. And when meekness and fear aren't there, trouble, it's an issue of your own strength rather than the strength of the Holy Spirit. By the way, meekness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so, surrender to him. Be filled with his spirit. Acknowledge him in all your ways. That's another way of putting sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him apart this morning and be ready. Gracious God, we commit ourselves to you and we thank you for your love and for your goodness. Lord, I pray this morning for those who have not hope here in this room that today they would believe on you, trust in you, and receive that hope. Lord Jesus, I pray that each one of us, as your dear children, would not be afraid of man, but would fear you. That each one of us would sanctify you in our hearts. You, our Lord God. May you be set apart as you set us apart in our hope. Then may we be ready always to give an answer And Lord God, we ask you for wisdom. There are many situations in which we don't know how to respond or answer. So I pray that you, your Holy Spirit would guide us, that you would use your word to guide us, and in some cases our teachers, in other cases, teachers who have been sanctifying you in their hearts as they've written books. As we do seek to give honest answers, Lord God, in it all, May we have the fruits of the Spirit. May we have meekness, your meekness flowing through us. May you be the one who gives that answer, for it is you that has given us the hope. We commit ourselves now to you as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.